Good afternoon. It's good to be back in Melbourne. Um, so Roy and I went to a church planting conference uh, over at Avondale in New South Wales um, from Tuesday to Thursday night. And so we um, enjoyed being there, but it rained every single day. Uh, not just little drizzle, but like pouring rain. And we had only taken one umbrella because we flew Jetstar. And you know how Jetstar is. Um, they're quite stingy with how many items you can have, etc. So between the two of us, we had to coordinate um, that one umbrella while going to different workshops. Most of the time, I got the umbrella, which was really nice. But um, while I was at the church planting conference, we learned a lot. It was fantastic. Uh, for those of you who are not aware, this is a church plant in the city. Uh, we started this church plant uh, almost exactly a year ago. February 1st was our first service last year. Um, and we exist here for a reason. Um, and I'll explain a little bit of that reason later on. But to be succinct, that reason is to help others connect to God and to learn about who He is. And uh, we are here in the city because we believe that there is a great need in the city. There are tons of people in the city who um, don't know about God and some who desire a relationship with God but don't even know where to begin. And we exist as a church to help um, connect to God ourselves but also to help others connect. And um, at this church planting conference, there were many speakers and workshops, and it was really inspiring to hear the stories of other church planters and also to hear... Um, be reminded once again of the principles and and the and the whys and the hows. Um, so it was really good. But there was this one presentation um, uh, by uh, Dr. Tom Evans, and he presented this trivia on the screen, and I, I thought it was uh, very interesting. So I brought it to share with you. Which YouTube video had 11 million views in five days? Was it A. The announcement of the new Pope? B. President George Bush having a shoe thrown at him. C, why I hate religion but love Jesus. Or D, William kissing Kate on the balcony of Buckingham Palace. I've actually seen all of them. <laughs> um, which one do you think had 11 million views in five days and actually was, I think, second at one point in time to the most views on YouTube ever? B. That was pretty entertaining watching uh, watching the shoe being thrown at my ex-president. Um, any other guesses? <laughs> yes, yeah, C, based on the, the topic for today. C, why I hate religion but love Jesus had 11 mu million views in five days and actually um, has over 28 million views as of today, actually. Why was this video so popular? And when you look at... Um, what this video, for those of you who haven't seen this video, what it is, is it's a spoken word, you know, poetry kind of jam, um, by a young man named Jeff Betke. I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. But he was 22 years old at the time, and he, uh, basically, uh, talks about in this about four minute video about how he hates religion and how religion, um, you know, is about hypocrisy and religion is man-made and religion, um, is not helping us towards God. Um, and how instead we should focus on the personal relationship with God and how, you know, we should, um, yeah, not look at religion and actually kind of repel religion as something that um, is separating us from God. Now, I think this video had 28 point whatever million views since um, it first went up in January 2012 for a, a reason. And that reason is that many people, and maybe some of you sitting here today, can really resonate with the fact that 
organized religion has been used to abuse people, to neglect um, those in need, um, and truly has in the past sometimes um, kept people from truly understanding the right picture of God. In fact, I'm sure many of us could relate to hearing stories if, if they haven't happened to us personally. Know of individuals who have had terrible um, experiences in a church setting um, and therefore never gave God a second chance. And so many people, and especially Aussies, I think, hate establishment, right? We're anti-establishment. And so we, we say we hate religion but love Jesus, and we kind of like that kind of uh, mantra and uh, battle cry. And I will be the first to apologize for the fact that as a representative of the, of, of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, um, that yes, there have been churches, there have been uh, church leaders, there have been institutions in the name of Christ who have done terrible things. And for those of you who are sitting here, and for those of you who are listening um, and watching this live, um, I'm truly, truly sorry for um, the pain and the neglect and um, the prejudice, the discrimination that you might have experienced at the hand of organized religion, whether that's Christian um, or another organized religion. Having said that, um, I think perhaps, and, and Jeff that his video, I think, um, the reaction to his video rather really shows how because of the pain, because of the experiences, the negative experiences that we might have had, we have kind of thrown the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, that we have decided that all organized religion is bad, that there isn't any good that can come from organized religion and that it's better off for us to actually just have personal individual relationships with God and forget community, forget church, forget, um, institutions. But I want to propose today that while, and I will go through this, there are, yes, dangerous tendencies to organized religion, that actually um, having an organized religious institution, having the church, um, is actually something that God desires and is something that actually helps us in our walk with God and helps us connect with Him better. And I want to begin by first defining Organized religion, because uh, I think there's a bit of confusion when people talk about religion, organized religion, um, Christianity, the church, lots of terms there. The organized religion definition that I'm using today is the one that is found um, online on dictionary.com or Wikipedia. It's basically a set of beliefs, values, and practices based on the teachings of a spiritual leader that are systematically arranged and formally established. Organized religion is typically characterized by an official doctrine, a hierarchical bureaucratic leadership structure, and a codification of rules and practices. So that is a definition of organized religion. And I want to look at, we've been going through, um, we are currently going through a series um on the the history of the, of the church, and so for those, for those for those of you who have been uh, with us since the beginning of this year, we have traced how Jesus resurrected, um, and then the early church kind of formed, and we're kind of in that beginning stages now. And if you look at how the church organized themselves after Jesus resurrected, um, we see that they implemented actually something that Jesus himself taught. Now, it's very true that Jesus was very critical of the religious leaders of his time. For example, let's look at this passage where Jesus criticizes uh, the religious leaders. But I want us to pay close attention to what his criticism is actually about. 
It says in Mark chapter 7, and I'll read uh, for you what's on the screen. It says, Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. Then the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching us doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things you do. And he said to them, All too well you reject the commandments of God, that you may keep your tradition, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. So let me ask you, what is Jesus criticizing in this conversation that he's having with the Pharisees? What is he criticizing? Okay. Yep. He's saying, look, you are saying that your traditions of washing in a special way that they themselves have come up with, uh, they have considered that more important than the commandments of God. And Jesus actually gives an example. He says, you know, the one of the commandments is to honor your father and your mother. And he says, but instead of honoring your father and mother, they had at that time in Jesus' day come up with this tradition that if you um, took the amount of money that you were supposed to support your parents with, because they're elderly and can't work, but instead of of supporting your parents, you take that money and you give it to the church, the the Jewish temple, as a gift. They called it a korban. They said, and then you just come to them. Then all of a sudden, the elders and the Jewish leaders said, "You are now absolved from having to take care of your parents because you've given this gift to the temple." And so Jesus actually gives that example to say, "Look, you are actually disregarding God's commands." in lieu of your own traditions that you have made up for yourself. So Jesus is not necessarily critiquing um, the laws and the, and the structure of the time. In fact, if you look at Jesus' life, um, he actually affirms um, the structure and the rituals of the day. And you have to keep in mind that when God actually brought the Israelites out of Egypt, they used to be a slave group. And what happened was God brought them out of Egypt and brought them into this land that they now possessed. And along the way, he gave them a set of laws. He gave them a, um, a set of civic codes. And he also gave them uh, religious rituals. He gave them uh, uh, religious days to keep, holy days to keep. And he also gave them um, a set of rituals that would help them one day realize that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. So there was nothing wrong with the structure. And in fact, he had actually uh, instituted the system of high priest and priests and Levites and those who served at the temple gates, those who you know did the washing, etc., etc., so Jesus didn't have a problem with the structure. He had a problem with the way that this structure had become um, clouded and marred and manipulated by individuals who added on top of what God gave their own ideas, their own rules, their own traditions. And not only did they give then um, the people a burden of things to keep, but actually replace that um, 
instead of God's laws themselves and God's structure themselves. When you look at Jesus' life and ministry during the three and a half years, he selected 12 disciples. Why did he have to select 12 individuals? He created already a structure of organization of leadership. He observed the Jewish holidays. When you look throughout um, history and you look at the scriptures, you see that Jesus attended the Jewish holidays. He said uh, in, in a book called Matthew, Jesus says to the uh, Pharisees who were quite upset with him for the way he lived his life and taught, he said to them, I did not come to abolish or get rid of the laws. He says, I came to fulfill them. So he didn't have a problem with organized religion as a set of beliefs and as a, as, as, as a structure of rituals. Instead, he had a problem with the way that they, um, they interpreted them. He also established ground rules for reconciliation. What I mean by that is that um, also in the book of Matthew, he outlines how to deal with conflict within a community. And he talks about two individuals having problems, how they should talk to one of the elders um, and someone inside the community. And if they don't listen to you, then you go outside the community. So he already had a, in mind a picture of a community where there would be a process where um, individuals are held in accountability. He also instituted uh, baptism and communion. These are two institutions where um, if one decides to become a follower of Jesus, they go through um, a ritual called baptism. And after they have gone through that, um, there's a regular institution called communion where you would break bread um, with one another. And it was supposed to be a reminder of how Jesus had died uh, for all mankind. And so he actually said, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. So he actually instituted rituals that were meant to be done together as a collective community, not to be done as an individual. And he also commissioned the disciples. And I have the mission up here on the screen. Before um, he went back up to heaven after he had resurrected, this was the mission that he gave to all his followers. He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So when Jesus gives this mission, we call it the, the Great Commission in, in Christian uh, language. When he gives this mission, he's basically giving them very specific instructions that are actually, if you are trying to implement those instructions, you need organization. Things like teaching, right? Things like baptizing. Things like going to the ends of the world. Um, takes a bit of organization, right? If you ever try to do... Um, a task with a group of people and try to do it without any leadership, try to do it without any delegation, try to do it without sharing responsibilities, how frustrating that can be. I remember growing up, I hated team projects because yes, I was that nerd that always, you know, tried to do a good job. And I was always placing those teams with people who didn't want to do anything and wanted me to do all the work for them. And it was extremely frustrating because you know, you're trying to meet together, you're trying to delegate responsibility, but nah, they didn't want to do it. And they just wanted to, you know, flirt with each other or goof around and I would inevitably end up with the work, right? Um, and that's an example of really bad organized um, uh, group. But the idea is that when you're trying to do something well and you're trying to do something as 
as big as impacting the globe with the message of Jesus Christ and of actually multiplying disciples. That wasn't a task that they could just all individually go out and do without talking about it, without coming up with a set of um, uh, procedures of praying together and working something out. In fact, when we look at the book of Acts, which is a book that records the history of this early church and records what happened after Jesus resurrected, uh, we find out that they had a specific set of beliefs that they were trying to convey. So if you look at the book of Acts, Roy last week preached about Peter and how he preached this sermon that stirred up people um, to, to believe in him. And at the very, very end of his sermon, this is his conclusion. He says, therefore, this is Peter, uh, who was one of the, the disciples of Jesus and uh, one of the leaders of the Christian church. He says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off as many as the Lord God will call. Notice how Peter has a conclusion. Peter has a thesis. Uh, Peter has a doctrine that he's actually trying to get people to, to, uh, to, to believe and to understand. He doesn't just share something that, you know, is his own idea. He doesn't, um, they don't all go around the disciples sharing all different versions of who Jesus actually was. No, they have all different personalities, but one common theme. And that is Jesus Christ, he says, is both Lord. Jesus, he says, is both Lord and Christ. This is their message. This is the story. This is the um, thesis with which they are now going out and sharing with the world. So if you continue on in the story, it says, Those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and the breaking of bread and in prayers. Can you imagine 3,000 people joining your church in one day if they didn't have something in place they definitely needed something now in order to take 3,000 people um, and help them it says here come together in doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayers and these are some of the activities of the church coming together eating together fellowshipping together but also learning together it says when the apostles doctrine is this isn't something that they just made up this is something that jesus taught that they're supposed to convey in fact organization not only gave them um, a set of beliefs that they were now to go out and share but it also gave them accountability um, and a structure where they could meet the needs of individuals and prevent abuse what i mean uh, by that is this when you read on in this book, it says, All who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all, as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. 
It says that they were ministering to each other's needs. And so what they would do is those who had, um, this wasn't communism because this was not forced. Those uh, who wanted to voluntarily would share some of their excess with those who were lacking. Now, here's where organized religion can become uh, dangerous. Whenever you have a group of people who come together, it's, it's, um, sadly the reality that not every single person has the mission in mind and has Christ's character in mind. And so, um, what sometimes happens in situations like this is that somebody decides to abuse that power or neglect their role. And what happened in this instance, um, in history is that as they were sharing together, as they were making sure that everybody's needs were met, a complaint came forward that the Greek widows were being neglected. And when this complaint came up, um, they came to the leaders. And the leaders were able to look at this and say, okay, you know what? We need structure in place to make sure that everybody's needs are being met, that there is no discrimination, that um, there is no you know, ethnic um, you know, prejudice going on. So if you look in the book of Acts uh, chapter 6, I'll just narrate it for you. They decide to select seven individuals and they call their role deacons. Um, diakonos is the Greek word. And these deacons' jobs, one of their jobs was to make sure that the Greek widows were being fed without discrimination. Um, and so they were literally serving them food. At the same time, they were supposed to continue to share the message of Jesus, um, encourage one another, lead in worship, etc., etc. And the interesting thing is that the word diakonos um, in Greek actually means servant. So these individuals were, were actually elected to be servants. So now you had the apostles who were the disciples of Jesus who had firsthand eyewitness um, stories of Jesus to share. Now those individuals had now uh, instituted deacons to come into place to help. And in the story, it says the elders, um, the deacons say, we need these deacons so that we can continue to do the ministry of spreading the gospel of Jesus, sharing the story of Jesus. Um, and so there are different roles now being added on so that this organization can continue to be effective and have accountability without abuse. I find it very interesting that um, this structure came out because of the need to counter and prevent discrimination. Because what has happened in history is that sometimes those roles and the very structure that was set in place to prevent abuse has become a vehicle of abuse. If you look at history, organized Christian church um, has done a lot of terrible things in the name of Jesus. And individuals, like I said, lost sight of the mission of the church and did not act in Christ-like ways. And so throughout many, many, many centuries, the Christian church in the name of Jesus actually abused their leadership power um, and manipulated um, what was being taught. But I think here is where it's once again so critical that we keep in mind that organized religion has a set of beliefs, that a set of beliefs that comes from the Bible when it comes to the Christian church. Um, I don't think it's a coincidence that for the 1,200 years that the organized religion religious institution of the church um, had the most abuse actually was the time 
when the church had the least amount of time um, and access to the Bible. For the 1,200 years since the early church till pretty much the, the 16th century, for that long period of a time, the average um, individual did not have access to the Bible, but also even the church leadership didn't have access to the Bible. When you read church history and you look at, um, for example, the the priests and you look at um, the the teachers of the law and you look at um, the monks and you look at just any kind of uh, bishop, anybody pretty much under the highest uh, rank of the Christian church did not have access to the Bible. So church pastors were going up and preaching um, sermons that had been pre-written and given to them. And they had never read the Bible for themselves because they just simply didn't have access to it. And so it was during this time where they didn't have access to the Bible, where they didn't have a set of beliefs that they could go back to and look upon that the greatest amount of abuse um, happened through the church. And I think this is a, one of the dangers of organized religion that still stays with us. I think if we ever neglect going to the Bible and searching and studying it for ourselves, we are in danger once again of going into that path of organized religion being abusive, um, manipulative, and also forced religion. One of the tendencies is that when you are part of organized religion, you think that because you're part of the institution, you no longer have to have a dynamic relationship with God, that somehow you're safely in the ark and that you are now good. There's a quote um, by a person named Richard Holloway. He says, All institutions overclaim themselves for themselves and end up believing more in their own existence than in the vision that propelled them into existence in the first place. This is particularly true of religious institutions. Religions may begin as vehicles of longing for mysteries beyond description, but they end up claiming exclusive descriptive rights to them. They segue from being from the ardor and uncertainty of seeking to the confidence and complacence of possession. They shift from poetry to packaging, which is what people want. They don't want to spend years wandering in the wilderness of doubt. They want the promised land of certainty, and religious realists are quick to provide it for them. The erection of infallible systems of belief is a well-understood device to still humanity's fear of being lost in life's dark wood without a compass. Supreme conviction is a self-cure for infestation of doubts. This is why David Hume noted that while errors in philosophy were only ridiculous, errors in religion were dangerous. They were dangerous because when supreme conviction is threatened, it turns nasty. And I think this is the real threat of organized religion that has turned so many people away. The fact that you think, oh, I belong here, so everything's good, and you turn off that seeking after God, so then there's a neglect of that personal relationship that looking at what he really wants and what he really says. And what it leads to is then not only a complacency, but this overprotective sense of unity where you're intolerant of anyone who is different from the status quo. And because they've kind of settled into this, what they believe is infallible state of being um, and a state of beliefs, etc., they're unwilling then to allow anyone to explore and question for themselves. This is what the cartoon says. It says, okay, here's how it works. First, you never question anything I tell you, and it's called the invention of religion. And this is the view that many people have, that religion is an institution where you are never allowed 
to question anything that is told. And I think that this is a real danger that we have to be mindful of. Is the religious institution that you belong to, is the church a place where you are safe to question it? And when you question it, is there immediate shutdown and, you know, fire alarms going off and they usher you to the side? Or you're allowed to freely explore and question, can the truth of your church afford to be fair? There's a quote that I really like from one of my favorite authors. She says, truth can afford to be fair. It can stand up to the test of time. It can stand up to the test of doubt. It can stand up to differences of opinion. Otherwise, it wouldn't be truth. When we, um, the Melbourne City Adventist Church, uh, formed two years, actually a year and a half before we began um, our weekly services, we had a lot of discussion. We prayed and talked and thought a lot about how we want to structure our church. What is the mission of our church? What's the style of our church? Why, what are the components of our church? And trust me, we don't have it all right. We're going to be tweaking. We're going to be changing. Um, we're constantly trying to um, get better and better at, at fulfilling the ultimate purpose of this church, which is to make disciples um, and to help people connect to God. But one of the things that we really wanted to have, and um, you'll see it, it says here, um, exploring Christ-centered worldview. But if you look at our full kind of mission statement on our website, it says the, the reason we exist is we want to create a safe place where you can explore a Christ-centered worldview. That means that you are welcome to disagree and question and explore. Um, and the purpose of, of this church is not so that we can all be one in what we think. The purpose of our church is that you can be one with Christ so that you can grow closer in your relationship to God. And we believe that as you grow closer to God, and we're all going closer to God, naturally we will all grow closer to each other. And that the unity will come through our seeking after God as a community. And that is why we have the discussion time. A time where you can totally disagree with everything I say. A time where you can disagree with one another. But hopefully in that disagreement, in that exchange of ideas, in that exchange of um, our study, in our exchange of our thoughts and experiences, we can have a clearer picture of God. That we are ever humble enough to say, that there is more to learn. That instead of being intolerant and instead of having this uh, mask of hypocrisy that Jesus actually criticized, that we would be able to be transparent and say, actually, I don't have all the answers. I don't know why it works this way. I don't know why God didn't answer that prayer. I, I don't have my life altogether. But you know what? I want to know more. I want to seek him more. I want to do it with you. And it's that part of organized religion where there's accountability with one another, where we can encourage one another, where we can come together and learn together um, that I believe is so good. That while organized religion in some cases have distracted us from the intent of God, that actually if we go back to the true meaning of community and accountability and leadership um, as a church, that it can actually meet the needs of those around the world. Many people think organized religion, pff, terrible. Let's just all kind of forget organized religion and religious uh, institutions themselves and that we are better people without it. A lot of people believe that. But did you know that actually 
religious people, individuals like you who attend church or individuals who uh, rather attend church regularly, um, did you know that they actually are a blessing to society? Unlike uh, what popular kind of myths say, you know, religious people have actually, you know, done a lot of harm to society. But when you look at the statistics, there was a study done by a man named Arthur C. Brooks. Uh, he published it in, in a, an article called Religious Faith and Charitable Giving. And he basically surveyed, um, and this is in the United States, um, he surveyed, um, I believe, 30,000 individuals in 50 communities in the year 2000. And based on this survey, the results were that religious people, and he defined religious people as those who attended church on a weekly basis, and he defined secular individuals to those who attended church less than a few times a year. So you might still be a believer or a Christian, but you're just not a religious person in the sense that you belong to a religious institution regularly. And he said that religious people are 25 percent points more likely than secularists to donate um, to a charity and 23 percent points more likely to volunteer their time. And what he did was he actually factored out, you know, differences in political beliefs and education, level of gender, age, race, marital status, etc. And even after he factored all that out, he says that if there's two individuals, one religious and the other secular, and they're identical in every other way, the secular person is 23% points less likely to give to a charity than a religious person, and 26% less likely to volunteer. And in fact, you think, well, you know, Sure, they're giving. They're probably giving to their own church and not really helping the world. Um, what he found was that, yes, 68% of the total population gives to non-religious causes each year and that the religious person is still 10 points more likely to give to a non-religious cause than a secular person and that 21% uh, percent points were more likely to volunteer their time than a secular person. And if you look at history, um, not only on an individual kind of giving basis, but these charities that have come to be are actually formed by religious organizations. Um, it was the Christian church, um, different you know, denominations of the Christian church that established hospitals, um, that established um, areas um, and places, safe places for single mothers, um, have instituted uh, homeless shelters and food pantries, there's so many different um, religious charity organizations, but just in, in general, the infrastructure and the relief agencies around the world that we have were actually spearheaded by Christian organizations that came together and decided to do something about the suffering in the world. Organized religion can actually help to break down injustice because the communal experience is founded on the basis that we are all one in Christ. I think one of the most uh, exciting things about church is that when you look around, there are individuals in this room that you don't normally get to spend time with. They might not be part of your work group. They might not be part of your friendship circle. They might not be part of your um, neighborhood. But you come to a place called a church, and there are people here who um, are from all walks of life. And the beauty of the church is that you get to learn to love them and you get to learn from each other. And there are very few places where you can do that, where you can come together um, with just one thing uniting you and have all this diversity. 
I think organized religion gives us that accountability um, that we need. For example, Roy was sharing earlier that you need to register for um, this event called Big Camp because there are children. Did you know that um, this church is part of, this, of, of an organization called the Seventh Day Avenue Church? And the Victorian Conference, because we're in Victoria, of Seventh Day Avenue churches are required to have a safe place um, policy in place. What that means is that if you want to teach Micah and Andrew, um, if you want to be part of that, um, any any children's ministry in any Seventh-day Adventist church in Victoria, you need to have a working with children check. You need to have um, interviews. You need to have certain policies in place to protect the children. But it's not just the children. Every two years, Roy and I, as employees of this conference, have to go to a boundary seminar um, where we are told for a whole day that we have to keep good boundaries um, so that we are not in abusive places. And if Roy and I lie, cheat, or do anything that is uh, wrong, um, we are held accountable by that religious organization. We will be removed from this this role. It's a good thing to be organized because it actually has has protection in place uh, for people, and um, you're allowed to then feel safe to come along and learn about God. I think finally, organized religion fosters a community and a sense of belonging. Because I'm a Seventh-day Adventist, um, and I made that decision to be one many, many years ago, I can travel anywhere in the world and look up a Seventh-day Adventist church in that area. And while the style of worship may be different, while the venue looks different, and while the preaching style may be different, I know I belong to that church because I'm not just a member of this local church, but a member of a global church of over, I think it is 18 million at the, at the current um, count. And this sense of belonging comes not because of the name, okay, I'm a baptized member of something in church, but because we're part of a movement of generation of people um, who have this one common purpose of preparing for Jesus' return. When Jeff Betke, um, the guy who created the video, Why I Hate Religion But Love Jesus, after his video went viral, he had thousands of comments to his video. And there was one particular pastor, Pastor Kevin DeYoung um, in Michigan, who wrote on his blog why he thought that this video was um, perhaps had some unintentional um, statements and ideas that didn't quite reflect um, the accurate picture of what an organized religion is. And Jeff actually read this critique and responded to it. This is what he said. God has been working with me in the last six months on loving Jesus and loving his church. For the first few years of walking with Jesus, starting in 2008, I had a warped, poor paradigm of the church, and it didn't build up, unify, or glorify his wife, the bride. If I can be brutally honest, I didn't think this video would get much over a couple thousand views, maybe. And because of that, my points in theology wasn't as airtight as I would have liked. If I redid the video tomorrow, I would keep the overall message, but would articulate, elaborate, and expand on the parts where my words and delivery were chosen poorly. My prayer is my generation would represent Christ faithfully and not swing to the other spectrum. I think that's our challenge as that generation, is our response to the abuse of the past, oh, forget church, forget religion, I'm just going to do it on my own. Or is our response going to be like, what Jeff is suggesting, 
to recognize that his church is his bride, is his appointed agency through which we can have community and grow together and fulfill the mission that he has given to us. I have a particular challenge to us here in Melbourne. Um, are we up for the challenge of sharing the Christ-centered worldview with those around us? Um, Roy's going to be, and Daryl will be handing out a piece of paper. And this is, um, you know, between you and God, but it also lets us know how we can empower you and how we can keep each other accountable um, and how we can encourage one another. And on this piece of paper that's being handed out, um, there's a question of, are you willing to commit? Are we up for the challenge of harnessing the power and potential of, of church to do what Jesus did, to teach as Jesus taught, and to live as Jesus lived? Are we willing to give chance, church a chance um, to remind us of the oneness of humanity, the power of divinity, and the beauty of community? Are we willing to seek God? And I, we've just listed a few options on there. Obviously, these are not, um, you know, comprehensive options. But we do believe that um, sometimes we're tempted to think that church is just something that we can do. It's one of the main things we can do. But you know what? It's not that important. Um, I want to challenge you, at least for the next however long, and you decide um, what that time frame might be. But why not commit to coming weekly? Of course, if you're sick, you know, don't die on your way here. But if, if you are able to commit to coming on a weekly basis or joining a small group, sometimes you come to church, but you don't um, go a little deeper into that community. And a small group is a great way to, to go a little deeper into that community. Or for joining a Bible study, um, not for the sake of learning alone, but also of learning together, like I said, having that humility to say, you, the other person has something um, that I don't know about God. And together, as we study together, there might be something that I've missed or something that I can share with the other person. Or perhaps you've um, wanted to become a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church um, and you've never had the, had the opportunity to actually get baptized, which is a formal it's like having a wedding, you know? It's like living together for someone and you've never just actually gotten married. And perhaps you want to actually take that formal step forward and say, I want to get baptized. Or perhaps you want to get more involved. Um, and we didn't list ministries on purpose. As the time of uh, reflection video showed, church is not a building, it's not ministries, it's you. You are the church. And so getting involved means using your unique talents and skills in a way that perhaps has nothing to do with what we do here on a Saturday afternoon. It might be something completely new. Maybe you love crocheting um, and want to crochet scars for the homeless. Um, I used to do that, so don't laugh at me. Um, or whatever it is, right? Whatever it is, um, just check it, and then we'll just chat together. There's some uh, ways that you can discover what your interests and talents are. Um, we'll hop you through that. Or perhaps you want to know, what is the Seventh-day Adventist Church? What is this thing? I've never heard of it before. I wanted more information. I would like to learn about this mission you keep talking about, right? Just check that, and we'll be happy to, to have a chat with you about that. Or other. I don't know. Maybe there's another way that um, you want to show that you want, want to give the church a second chance. Um, and so we're just going to um, have a song of reflection. And during this time, if you could please fill it out, I encourage everyone to do so. Um, and then Roy and Daryl will collect it. Um, 
at the end of the service. And so um, I sincerely pray that as we give the church a chance, we will find that God is so much greater than we ever thought, and that as a result, we'll be able to share that God with others.